Hello and welcome to Teaching English with the British Council, a podcast in which we try and provide solutions to some of the key questions being asked by English teachers around the world. Teaching English with the British Council. I'm your host, Chris Salton. In each episode, we address one such question and attempt to answer it in two ways. Teaching English with the British Council. In the first part of each episode, we hear from a British Council project, programme or publication about something which is being done to address this issue. Across the ten episodes of the series, we hear from teachers, trainers and researchers in a wide range of contexts, including India, Lebanon, Uruguay and South Africa. Teaching English with the British Council In the second part, a leading English expert and practitioner will provide practical solutions which you can immediately try out wherever you work. Each episode of Teaching English is accompanied by a full transcript and show notes. These show notes provide additional information, a glossary of key words and links to relevant websites. Teaching English with the British Council This is episode 9. How can I support my own and my students' mental well-being? Welcome to episode 9 of Teaching English with the British Council, in which we will try to answer the question, how can I support my own and my students' mental well-being? The last two years have presented huge challenges for both teachers and students in terms of their physical, mental and emotional well-being. And yet, as our interview guest in this episode said in a recent blog, so many teachers neglect their own self-care, focusing their time and energy on other aspects of their professional practice. In episode 7 of Teaching English with the British Council, we looked at the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and how they could be used in the language learning classroom. In this episode, we follow on from this and look specifically at SDG 3, Good Health and Wellbeing, and in particular, at how you can support your own and your students' mental health. And so, in this episode's field report, we look at a recent publication by the British Council as part of their Connecting Classrooms programme. As well as hearing all about this publication, available free on the British Council website, and the activities you can do with your students, we'll also hear some entries from one of the resources mentioned in the book, from the Positive Lexicography Project, which celebrates so-called untranslatable words related to well-being from across the world's languages. Hi, I'm Emily Pelter, the Senior Consultant at the British Council who oversaw the publication of Mental Health and Wellbeing, Staying Healthy and Resilient. According to the World Health Organisation, depression is one of the leading causes of disability. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among 15 to 29 year olds. People with severe mental health conditions die prematurely as much as two decades early due to preventable physical conditions. Despite progress in some countries, people with mental health conditions often experience severe human rights violations, discrimination and stigma. Hi, I'm Rachel and I'm a Welsh speaker. My positive word is kutch, 
which means a hug or a cuddle, as well as a sanctuary or a safe, welcoming place. This publication, Mental Health and Wellbeing, Staying Healthy and Resilient, was created in order to promote positive mental health and well-being among teachers and pupils and their broader school communities. The publication is very practically focused and contains a range of activities which you can use to develop positive health and well-being for both yourself and your students. While these resources were developed as a response to the COVID-19 pandemic, the activities are open-ended and so provide a flexible resource to support children and young people's mental health. Hi. I'm Hela and I'm an Arabic speaker. My positive word is Ishra, which means the connection you have with someone, having known each other for a long time and from your shared experiences. Another really strong theme in the publication is gratitude. Showing gratitude is really important for mental well-being and it also provides many opportunities for language development. Three suggestions for this are given in the publication. So first, there is a gratitude tree where students each design their own leaf in which they write something which they're grateful for. The leaves are then all displayed on a class gratitude tree. Or second, students can create gratitude books which are made by folding a piece of A4 paper many times. They can record their gratitude in this book on a daily or weekly basis. And thirdly, students can individually write what they're grateful for on pieces of square paper. And then these bits of paper can be brought together and displayed in the form of a gratitude quilt to show connection and interdependence. Hi, I am Bob and I am a Thai speaker. My positive word is Nam Tsai, which literally means water from the heart, but can be used to mean kindness or generosity. Throughout the publication, there are also lots of things for teachers to help them think about how they can integrate mental health and well-being into their daily activities. One suggestion concerns the importance of promoting learning throughout our lives. And one way to do this is to create a board in the staff room or even in a public part of the school where teachers can share photos of their learning in action. The whole staff team could even focus on one particular skill which they're all attempting to learn. And this can be a really valuable learning and sharing experience for teachers and also very motivating for students. Hi, I'm Linda. Sometimes the last thing which teachers want to do after a hard day or week of teaching is to sit down in a room for training or a meeting. So rather than having a meeting sitting in a staff room, could you go for a staff meeting walk instead? Or is there something different which you could do, something unusual, which is a bit more fun and brings the staff team together? Alternatively, you could create a wellbeing jar in which you put pieces of paper in where you can write ideas, quotations, initiatives, challenges or promises that might inspire others. It's really vital that we all look after our mental health in the same way as our physical health. Mental health is about having a positive mental outlook with the ability to take control over life's challenges. We need to work to maintain it. And there are things which can be done in the classroom to understand mental well-being better and to do things which can improve it. Hi, I'm Rosa and I'm a Catalan speaker. 
My positive word is sobre taula, which means the time you are sitting around the table after eating with friends or family when food has finished but the conversation is still flowing. Teaching English with the British Council. Thank you to all our contributors to that field report. And following Rachel, Haller, Book and Rosa, I would like to add my own positive word from English, which is petrichor, the smell of rain, particularly the smell made when it falls on dry soil. As ever, please remember that you can access a full transcript and show notes from the British Council website. Sarah Mercer is Professor for Foreign Language Teaching and the Head of the ELT Research and Methodology Department at the University of Graz in Austria. Her main area of current research explores language teacher well-being, looking at how mentally and physically healthy teachers are more engaged, motivated and efficient. Her most recent book was nominated for the British Council Eltons in the Innovation in Teacher Resources category and entitled Teacher Wellbeing. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Chris. It's lovely to be here. So Sarah, from your website, there's a quotation I just wanted to ask you about. It says, positive teacher well-being is one of the key ingredients to being not just a good teacher, but a great teacher. Could you expand a little bit on why you think that? There's a strong connection between teacher well-being and learner well-being. Now, I don't want to make teacher well-being just about the learners. It should be about the teachers in their own right. You know, they deserve to be enjoying well-being in their professional lives anyway. But if the teacher is in a good place physically and mentally, they just have more capacity to be creative, to deal with difficulties in the classroom without having a, a meltdown, without their nerves being fraught to think about how to deal with things differently. You know, teaching's a, a very demanding job. You have to think on your feet a lot. You have to be quite flexible. And, you know, everybody listening, every teacher knows that when you're tired, you're a little bit more cranky and irritable. Oh, Everything yeah. gets on your nerves a lot quicker. Um, you, you just go through things that are familiar and comfortable because you just don't have the brain space to do anything else. So you can have the best tools in the world, the best materials in the world, but if you're going to exploit the potential within those, you need to be in that space where you can work to the best of your ability. Well-being is not an added luxury or, or an indulgence. It's ensuring that teachers are in that best space possible. Not saying that they always have to be top of the game and feeling fantastic, that's unrealistic. But if we are serious about attending to teacher well-being and we allow them to be in that positive space, it puts them in the best position to be able to make the most of what resources they've got, building the relationships with learners, developing that. And learners will feed off that. And obviously, emotions are contagious. And if teachers have got higher well-being, more positive emotions, there's a good chance that the learners will pick up on that too and will also enjoy better well-being, which in turn will help their learning. It's interesting you say that well-being for teachers shouldn't be seen as an indulgence or some sort of added extra. But in your research, do you see that it is treated in that way by some systems or by some institutions? Oh, yes, most definitely. I mean, no question. And in fact, I'd say the majority, probably. It has changed. But I have to confess that I have got a great worry that what has happened is, of course, the pandemic has cast light on all the structural inequalities, all the problems in the education system, all the injustices, all those systemic difficulties with our education systems full stop have been highlighted through the pandemic. 
it's a good thing that we've drawn attention to it, we've cast light on it, and now we can deal with it. And I was just reading something earlier about, you know, this whole phrase of, I think it was Bill Clinton's, this build back better. There's no point in restoring what we had before when it was flawed. We have to build back better means you build it back differently. And now that we can see these problems, now is the time to address them. And when we do move forward, we don't restore what we had before. We build something better than that. And that means addressing things like teacher well-being alongside a whole host of other inequalities and injustices. But for teacher well-being, I think we've got a few problems. So great that we've got more attention to it now. People are starting to look at it, talk about it. But I don't want that to just be, oh, now the pandemic's over, we're done with teacher well-being, we can move on to something else. Whereas I would like to see it as an integral part of some of these systemic changes that we make moving forward. There is, as you say, a real opportunity for a, a reset moment that the pandemic has given us. I mean, if you did have a sort of magic wand with regards to teacher and learner well-being, what would be some of the kind of changes you would like to see made And I think we have to have serious conversations about working conditions. I think we're all well aware, particularly in the field of language teaching and ELT particularly, I think we're all well aware that there is a huge problem with precarity, um, with uh, status and professionalism, job security, um, uh, pay, quite simply, working conditions. So I think we have to have some serious conversations about that. Um, I think we also need to be looking at workload and what is realistic and what is feasible for teachers to manage. Admin in many uh, education systems, admin has blossomed and has taken up an inordinate amount of time. And we have to talk about what technology can offer, but also the perils of not creating boundaries to home life so that teachers are constantly available and constantly expected to be online and doing things and working that they have no weekends. I was having a conversation with someone the other day and she, we were talking about weekends and I said, no, I, I really have to work out. I have to claim back a full day of weekend. And she was like, Sarah, one day, you just want the one day back. And, you know, I don't think that's just me. I don't yeah, know no. how many teachers I know that Sunday fundamentally is preparing for the, the week coming up. And I don't think that's just me. And, I, and it's not healthy. You know, we have a weekend for a reason. If the workload is exceeding what they can realistically do during the week, there's something wrong with the workload. And so these are sort of talking about teacher status, teacher working conditions, expectations of teachers, um, what support is available for teachers in terms of also additional staff, specialist staff and support staff, admin staff. I think it's a really interesting point and, and one which seems to be talked about a little bit more now in the sector, but still there's a long way to go for that. Certainly in a lot of developing world places where I work, you see the impact that that can have on the classroom level, the stress and the anxiety that teachers have in terms of not knowing whether they will be paid for the work they've done that month, whether they'll have a contract in a month or two months time. But also coupled with that is the challenges they have in that in societies or in situations where there are no other members of the government available or where there are no other publicly facing services teachers become a lightning rod for all of those challenges and they're seen by their students as being potentially able to provide support and solutions to all of those different things and teachers 
have to take on board a lot of those issues. There's cases of vicarious trauma, all those sorts of challenges which teachers are facing. Teachers are in many places not given the kind of support staff in terms of social workers, psychiatric support for themselves and for students. You know, there's a whole kind of lot of peripheral things that come into teaching that are inevitably part of the job. But there needs to be support staff there, the professionals who can deal with the professional issues that need addressing. And you just talked, Chris, about trauma. I, I think the next couple of years, you know, the, the effects of the pandemic are not going to be over when the pandemic finishes. A lot of that does, as you say, fall on, on the shoulders of teachers. And teachers are very other oriented that's one of the one of the lovely things about teachers and why they're so special is they are very other oriented very giving and they very often open themselves to that kind of role and support but you know it's the same old thing who's supporting them who's giving them that kind of backup trauma being laid on top of trauma in many situations there's a quotation by uh, alicia ferguson garcia a teacher she said i was blindsided by the emotional aspect of teaching i didn't know how to handle it i was hurt by my students pain and it was hard for me to leave that behind when i went home i think that captures a lot of what a lot of teachers feel and that's just been increased even more by what's happened over the last two or so years you know teaching is a very emotional undertaking particularly in certain settings that is amplified and through the conditions that people are working in or the experiences that students bring to the classroom that teachers you know indirectly secondary then have to deal with so I think there's just a lot of emotional investment emotional labor a lot of also identity beliefs it's just such a huge part of what it means to be a teacher and one that I don't think we provide sufficient training and supporting I think we're often so focused on the sort of um, mechanics of didactics that we don't necessarily provide enough support training and background for teachers to not only cope with the emotions that they're going to be faced with in the classroom and among their learners but how they process that and how they deal with their own emotions as well. I think that's right. I think a lot of in sort of pre-service training, but also in-service training, it's almost seeing the classroom as a laboratory where if you do X, Y and Z will follow without actually seeing it as situated within a community or a particular society. Also, it's that holistic view, isn't it? I mean, you know, whatever, whatever happens in a classroom is part of a much bigger picture. You can't, you just can't extract as if that's not happening. And you can't put people in a classroom and just pretend that the rest of their lives currently and their pasts are not there. It's all of it's in that mix, in that space in the classroom. And the healthiest thing to do is give that space and address it and help people to manage that, cope with that and move forward with that rather than just ignore it. What would you say to a teacher now who's worried about their own well-being or their learners' well-being? What kind of advice, what tips, what support would you give to those teachers? It's a good question. And and, and I sort of will put, I'm going to put a little caveat at the beginning. One of the problems with the well-being, so it's taken us a long time to be able to talk about well-being without people thinking it's pop psychology and fluffy. So that's taken a pretty long time for us to get to this stage where well-being is seen as something serious and not something sort of, you know, to be made fun of and part of the pop psychology movement. But tied in with all of that heritage and the reason that it has been quite difficult is the emphasis that's been placed on individual psychology, that we've been looking at how individuals can engage in the whole notion of self-care and, uh, you know, looking after yourself as an individual. All of that is good advice 
but it's not the only solution. It can't be the only answer. And you have to understand the social as well. Well-being is not just an individual thing. It's a social and individual thing. And so one of the problems that well-being as a notion has had, and also some of the interventions have had, is that they only address the individual and what the individual can do. They almost take responsibility away from institutions and policymakers and education systems. And just say, it's your responsibility to look after yourself. So, but I've been sort of a strong advocate that you can't, you know, we can argue for systemic change, but we can't leave teachers alone without any strategies of how to cope in the moment, because that's irresponsible. That's just, that's also ignoring the reality. So there's quite a few things that you can do. And I think um, it's about understanding that well-being is not just about, Peter McIntyre calls it happyology. It's not just you have to be happy. It's about understanding the full palette and range of emotions giving those space, being able to recognize them in yourself, recognize what your emotional triggers are and understand yourself in terms of if I feel like that, what do I need? What can help me to feel better? And that's very individual for different people. People have different triggers. They have different emotions that they have to cope with. So I think part of that process of helping yourself is learning to understand, listen to your body, listen to your emotions, listen to your mind, recognize what emotions you're feeling, what the triggers have been for you and what you need to counter that. Learning to set boundaries and say, you know, after this time, I'm not available. And that's something that has to change is that you cannot be expected that you should be available Saturday, Sundays, unless, you know, Saturday's a school working day. But generally, if you're saying whatever your weekend is, you're not available the weekend and evenings you know for a certain time in the evening your evening should be time for you or your family or whatever it is you want to spend it on that's not work related so and that's one of the things that the pandemic has made very difficult is these temporal and physical boundaries between work and home have become very blurred and it's very very hard to create a sort of a waste space physical space as well as temporal space and then allied with those practical strategies is the individual psychological component which is that you tell yourself I need to be the best I can be and being the best I can be means taking time off means having those boundaries in place so I think Chris that's actually really important that you say that is I think the first step and, and, and Tammy and I when we wrote the book for, for OEP the, the teach well-being book one of the things that we deliberately decided to do we felt in all the conversations we'd had with teachers there was almost a guilt in saying that I want to take time for myself, that it was seen somehow as selfish or narcissistic, or you, you weren't supposed to be like that. You were supposed to be there for your student. You were, you know, and it was almost a sort of martyrdom that you should be there and you should be ready for, and you should, you know, your students come first and all that. But, but by definition, martyrs end up dead. Yeah, quite. And that, that leads to burnout. There's nothing more guaranteed to do that. So we made a very deliberate thing to say, you know, it's about me and it's perfectly okay to say, this is me and this is what I need. And we mustn't feel guilty for what I consider a healthy degree of selfishness in saying, you know what, I'm a human being like anybody else. I've got needs and I need to pay attention to those. And when I do, one, it's good for me, but it's good for everybody around me. My family will thank me because I'll be a nicer person and I'll have more time for them. And also I'll be able to teach better. I'll do my job better. It's a win-win for everybody, but we have just ignored it for so long. And there's been this implicit set of expectations on what people do and what's considered good teaching. That it's, I think it is a little bit of a, a, a mind shift is needed 
to get people to allow themselves that space and time to say it's actually okay to put my needs out there and to express those and and to demand certain things. Some of the well-being work more recently has looked at the notion that you can't be well if your society is not well because the two things are related. So you as an individual can't possibly be well if the society that you live and you work in is not well. And so that's also about things like injustices and inequalities on a societal level. But I think we have that same issue as a community, as an ELT community, that we can't ignore things that are happening in our community, in our field. We have to do advocacy for everybody in whatever form is possible for us and that we feel comfortable with. Some people will be slightly more political, some will be able to write, some will do it on a very grassroots level, but we are a community. We're all in this together in a sense. It doesn't matter where you work. I feel a relationship to somebody who's an English language teacher or a language teacher full stop, wherever they happen to be working. Mm. And I feel that there's a sort of joint sense of responsibility to advocate for each other and how people choose to to express that will will vary. But hopefully the more dialogue we have, the stronger voices we raise in various contexts, the easier it will be for people to fight their corner. Absolutely. Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. It's been lovely talking to you, Chris. Thanks ever so much. Thanks to Sarah and to all our contributors in the episode for highlighting the importance of the issues of teacher and student well-being. As we have seen, it's an aspect of learning which is often undervalued and seen as an extra or add-on, but actually has a critical effect on learning experiences and learning outcomes. If recent history has taught us anything, it's that well-being should be seen as a fundamental component of the classroom. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teaching English with the British Council. We hope you enjoyed it. Please do like, subscribe and review. And please remember to download the show notes and transcript. Join us next time for episode 10, our final episode of the series, where we will try to answer the question, how can me and my colleagues support each other? Until then, goodbye. Teaching English with the British Council.